0: The reading this morning is from Messiah 8, verse 22, and then chapter 9 to verse 7. And they look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. For to us a child is born, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Sebulun and the land of Nathatala. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trumping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, Will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I'm just going to pray first before we jump in. Um, Our Father who is in heaven, you are holy. Um, We just thank you Lord for Um, being with us this morning. I thank you just for your spirit um, guiding us already and and just the the presence uh, in this room. Um, Just thankful for that, Lord. Um, Holy Spirit, we ask for your help again this morning. Um, Speak to your people, Lord, um, despite me. (laughs) Um, Jesus, may you be glorified this morning. Uh, May we see you far more clearly um, and just be blown away by who you are this morning, Lord. And We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good to see you. Um, great to have uh, some of us back in the room together. Um, uh, like Nick said, if you aren't able to be here, you're joining with us in the live stream, uh, we love you. Uh, we really do. We, we don't just say that. Uh, we miss you. Um, you. You've probably heard it a thousand times from uh, said from up here, but one of our values uh, as a church is this value of church as family. Um, and again, that's not just a nice kind of catch, catchphrase that we came up with, uh, kind of selling point to how unique our church is. Um, rather, that's something that the Bible teaches us explicitly. Um, it's, it's abundantly clear in the New Testament that the church of Jesus Christ, it really isn't a, an event that you go to on a Sunday. It's not a, a building that you, that you enter into. It's, it's a family that you are adopted into um, and really over the years, we've, we've worked with all our might to take that value, that, that, that reality seriously, haven't we? Um, and, and hopefully it's, it's experienced not just with, hey, there's a real sense of community there, but it's experienced in a real togetherness, a real physical, familial togetherness, um, which to be honest has made 2020 really hard, hasn't it? Um, but I don't know about you, but I have felt that... The pain of being separated from you, my family, um, all the more kind of deeper through this kind of Advent and, and Christmas uh, series. Um, when I think of village at, at Christmas time, I think of a lot of time spent in each other's homes. Um, I think of uh, telling stories and laughing around a fire. Um, I think of feasting together, sharing good food and, and drink. Um, I think of that night when this room is absolutely rammed with people, um, singing with all their might these holy songs, celebrating uh, this God who took on flesh, became one of us and dwelt among us, came to seek and save the lost. Um, in my mind, that's what Advent and Christmas is meant to look like. Um, and it's, obviously it's painful that we're not getting to do so many of those things that are so important to us. But um, as I was thinking and praying about that this week, um, I felt the Lord just kind of gently and, and lovingly remind me uh, that this is not the way it will always be. I think it's a really important thing to just remember. Um, no, no matter how dark and uncomfortable and isolated things get, And on the other hand, no matter how joyous and lovely our experience of Advent and Christmas will be, there's still that truth that this is not how it will always be. Um, In fact, there will come a day when we will no longer have to participate and and kind of celebrate Advent every year because there's one day that Christ is going to come again and that, that Jesus is going to leave heaven a second time and come to earth a second time and he's going to put things right the way they're meant to be once and for all. Um, you get a picture of, of that glorious future in Revelation 21. It tells us he will wipe away every tear. Um, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I think we can add to that. No more isolation. No more uh, viruses. No more darkness. Um, it says, for the former way of things have passed away. Those things are gone forever. They will be gone forever. Uh, and Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. Um, and we will be with him for all eternity. Anybody else looking forward to that? Um, it's going to be glorious. Being in the physical presence of Jesus and um, with the absence of sin and death um, will be glorious. And it's going to be more glorious than you and I can ever imagine. And, and I believe one of the reasons it will be so glorious, it will be so sweet and satisfying is because we've had to wait. And um, I really believe that, church. I, I believe that we'll look back on these days when... As 1 Peter puts it, we've been um, grieved with various trials. We'll look back on these, these difficult testing periods, these character-building days. And these days will make experiencing what we're meant to experience all the more glorious. What we're meant to experience is that relational bliss. That's what you're created for, of that union with your Creator and with your brothers and sisters. It's going to be glorious. And, and as I mentioned uh, last week, my prayer is that the Lord would use these current circumstances, will use these, the pain uh, that we're experiencing right now to press these lessons of Advent, uh, uh, of waiting, of holding on to hope in the darkness. He'll press those lessons deeper into us than He's ever done before. That's my prayer. Because, listen to me, this, this waiting period, in this waiting period, God is preparing you for something glorious. In this, in this waiting period, in this kind of holding on in the darkness, God is preparing you, he's preparing us for something glorious. And my prayer is that we as a church family would make our way through the next few weeks, hopefully the rest of our lives, with this otherworldly kind of thanksgiving and rejoicing and content in our hearts for what the Lord is doing even in the deepest, kind of darkest valleys. And my prayer is that we wouldn't go through the next few weeks kind of grumbling and complaining that this isn't the way it should be, but rather we'd endure these things with thanksgiving and and rejoicing and hope. Because as we learn in Hebrews, as the people of God, we have a hope that is anchored in heaven, a hope that he is doing something for us, that he is bringing us closer each day to a glorious future with him. Um, That's my prayer. Um, Will you join me in kind of praying for our church that that would be? Uh, we would be able to do that with the Lord's help over the next little while. Um, it's important. It's important to learn how to wait. And that's why we uh, participate in Advent every year to re- be reminded of the importance of waiting, of holding on to hope, the importance of learning to wake up every single morning and preach to yourself that this is not how it will always be. Um, no matter how dark our circumstances get, we have a great hope. We have a great hope to cling to and to look forward to. Um, and as we're doing that this year, uh, we're, we're doing that by looking at these four names uh, given to Jesus, the promised Messiah, way back in Isaiah 9. And I love that we're just getting to read that same chapter over and over again each week. Hopefully that's kind of getting ingrained in you by now. Um, hopefully by now you'll be able to kind of understand the background of the text. That background in chapter 8, verse 22, the people are experiencing distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish thrust into thick darkness. And hopefully by now you'll be able to give that a summary of what God is doing in this chapter, that even though the people are in distress and darkness, the good news in chapter 9 verse 1 is that there's coming a time when he will do away with the darkness, that he will um, change their circumstances. Isaiah, he's telling us in this chapter, this is what the Lord is going to do. He's pointing them to the future and he's saying the Lord's going to change your circumstances. He's going to change your situation. And you see what he's going to do is he's going to move the people from this gloom of anguish, of contempt, to glory. He's going to move them from uh, darkness, dwelling in this land of thick darkness, he's going to move them to light. Um, it's a message of incredible hope that he's delivering here. Um, and, and I love just even just picturing what Isaiah, what, he was, what it looked like for him to receive this, this prophetic vision you know, um, I just picture him at his desk with his candle lit. He's just like praying and abiding with the Lord and, uh, and just listening uh, to the Lord. And God's giving him what he's going to do, what he's going to accomplish for his people. And he writes these things down and he's, he says, um, God's going to multiply the nation. This, this is what I, 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 I see coming for us. And you, you kind of think of God's promise that he made to Abraham. He's going to multiply them. Um, he says they're, he's going to increase their joy. And he gives kind of two reasons for that uh, in verses 3. Um, he, he says, you know, he's, they're going to rejoice before you as the joy of, uh, of the harvest, so he's, he's kind of, he's, he's saying God's going to provide for you, and there's going to be great joy because of God providing for you, but he also says they will rejoice before God as, as they're glad when they divide the spoil, so there's going to be some kind of victory that's going to be won, and it's going to be so glorious and such a great victory that they're going to rejoice before the Lord. You may not understand exactly what that is, but this is what he's seeing. And he says, wow, the, the yoke of their, their burdens will be shattered. The, the rod of their oppressors will be broken. Um, what a glorious future he's seeing that they, could, they should look forward to. Um, and then he sees how God is going to do all this, how he's going to accomplish that. And he says, believe it or not, he's going to send a child. A son is going to be born. He's going to be given to us. And as we saw, this isn't any ordinary child. Um, No, on on his shoulders will rest the government of the universe. And then he gives these four names, or four kind of royal titles that this child will be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, It's important to understand that these four names, they're not literal names that this Messiah will actually be called. So you never, Jesus' mother, Mary, it never calls out, hey, wonderful counselor, can you come help me set the table? And even all throughout the New Testament, you, Jesus has never called any of these four names. And what Isaiah is doing, rather, is he's saying with these four names, he's letting us know what this Messiah is going to be like. What's, he's letting us know what the character of this person is. Um, how is he going to relate to his people? Who will he be for his people? And we pointed out in week one that the name Wonderful Counselor means he doesn't come just with good advice. He comes as the source of all wisdom. He comes with all the answers to help us in your deepest needs. Remember that word wonderful in the Jewish thinking it demands God as its explanation. So a wonder is something so incredible that God himself must be behind it. Um, this wonderful counselor is God with us, come as the source of all wisdom, come with a plan to bring his people out of darkness into the light. And um, We saw last week, not only does he come with a plan to save us, but he comes with a power to carry out that plan because the child born unto us is in fact mighty God. Um, he, he will be a, ch- a champion for his people, a mighty warrior hero. He will be the strong one who comes to help us in our weakness, come to declare War on our greatest enemy, Satan, um, and in His power, He's able to help us in our weakness. Um, he's come to be mighty God for His people. And then the third name we look at today is Everlasting Father. Um, I don't know about you, but of these four names, this one made me kind of scratch my head the most. Made me kind of stop, and I need to like, okay, let me do a little bit of work to, to figure out what He's saying here, because on the few, on the surface, it's a little bit confusing, isn't it? Um, this is a prophecy of the incarnation of the Son. Yet here he's calling him everlasting Father. What does Isaiah mean by that? Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on kind of Trinitarian heresy here. because um, Partly because I'm just not sharp enough to be able to um, explain it thoroughly. But also because I don't think that's what this text is about. Um, um, but in a nutshell, one of the central kind of foundational, non-negotiable beliefs that we have as Christians is we believe in a Trinitarian God. We believe that God is one God, but in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm not gonna go too deep into that now, but it's just important to note that Isaiah isn't denying the Trinity by calling Jesus everlasting Father here. Um, He isn't confusing these two persons of the Godhead. um, He isn't teaching us that God the Son is, the second person of the Trinity is the same person as God the Father. and um, That's a heresy called, known as modalism. I'm not going to get into it. But uh, as I said earlier, Isaiah's purpose in giving these names isn't to tell us the, the Messiah's literal name or to say, hey, this is his role within the Godhead. Rather, he's describing his character towards us. He's saying, this is what he will be like to you. Let me tell you about the character of this person towards his people. Um, Sam Storms calls it a, a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He will be fatherly. He will be fatherlike in his treatment of us. That kind of makes sense. And we're, I'm going to get into that more in a minute. But before we get into that fatherly aspect, I really want to focus on the everlasting part of that name because it's really important. And probably more than any other author, Isaiah loves talking about eternity, Um, In chapter 57, verse 15, he speaks of God as the one who is high and lifted up, the one who inhabits eternity, um, whose name is holy. And that's a mind-blowing description or explanation of who God is, isn't it? The one who inhabits eternity, who is high and lifted up. Um, this, This is a God who, his home is in eternity. He exists outside of space and time. In fact, he Those things were his idea. Those things he created. He spoke them into being. And and that one who inhabits eternity, that's the same language he's using here to refer to this coming Messiah in chapter 9. This coming Messiah will be the Alpha and Omega. He's, He's the one who has no beginning and has no end. He's the one who is and who was and who is to be. This is the Almighty that you see in Revelation. Isaiah is giving him this name in order to tell us that Though this child is born unto us, this is not him coming into existence. Um, th- this is not him being created. That's not true because he is actually everlasting, he calls him. Um, this is most, kinda, most beautifully and most clear, clearly taught in John 1, I believe. Let me just read you some of that. You're familiar with it. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice he says, he, speaking about a person here. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Reminds you of Isaiah Isaiah 9, doesn't it? This light that shines in the darkness. Um, He goes on in verse 9, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14 says, and the word, that word that was in the beginning, that word that is God, that word that that has no beginning or end, this word who inhabits eternity Becomes flesh and dwells among his people. We have seen him glory is the glory as the only Son of from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you understand what that says? Jesus did not come into existence when he was born in that cattle stall. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was never created. That Jesus inhabits eternity. That he has no beginning that he has no end, but rather that he is the word put on flesh, becoming like us and to dwell among his people. Isaiah is making it clear here that this child who is born unto us is in fact the author of eternity. It's amazing, isn't it? Spurgeon calls him the infinite infant. I think of all, of all the miraculous things, this is the most mind-boggling one, isn't it? Um, The second part of that name, not only does he call him everlasting, but he calls him everlasting father. Um, Again, this isn't a reference to uh, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Instead, um, Alistair Begg says, this is a designation of the quality of the Messiah in respect to his people. Um, So I think if we were able to ask Isaiah, how does this Messiah act towards his people? Isaiah is saying here, well, he acts like a father towards his children. Um, this is how you'll experience his care and his provision and his protection. Like that of a father. And, and at, it's important that we don't, what we don't want to do is separate these four names out. Um, they're meant to go together. They're, they're meant to be, all of them are true of this one person. Um, which, when you reflect on it, is really, really great, isn't it? Um, so, so he's saying that this Messiah who will come as wonderful counselor who will come with all the wisdom in the universe, this Messiah who will come as mighty God, the, the infinitely strong, heroic, champion, warrior, the way you're going to experience that wisdom, the way you're going to experience that might is like that of an everlasting, perfect father. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll be used to the, the writers talking about Jesus and how we relate to him in kind of various familial ways. Um, remember in Hebrews 2, uh, it says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Um, Romans 8, he's the firstborn among many brothers. Galatians were, you know, were heirs with him. Um, so we relate to Jesus as an older brother in a way. Um, we also relate to Christ as a spouse. Um, Ephesians 5, you know, talks about Paul talks about the marriage, our marriages relate to Christ and the church in that way. Um, Revelation 19, the church is the this bride who is presented blamelessly before uh, the bridegroom Christ. So we relate to Jesus as a husband in that way as well, and as a brother, as a husband. And Isaiah is saying here that he comes into this world also like a father caring for his children. And um, You see this all throughout the Bible, all through the New Testament, you see this kind of parental care of Jesus. Um, remember, the author of Hebrews says, um, in, chapter two, in chapter one, verse two, um, he says, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God the Father has spoken to us by his son. Um, and then it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus, the son of God, comes into this world and reveals to us what the Father is like. In John 14, Jesus' disciple Philip, he says to him, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says to him, Have I not been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What you see is Jesus essentially says, you want, to see, you want to know the Father? You want to experience the Father? You want to experience the Father's love and His care and His provision? Look to me. I, I am the exact imprint of His nature. I, I radiate His glory. We, we are united. He is in me, I, in, I am in Him. Whoever has seen me has seen Him. Um, it's amazing language, isn't it? And, and When you hear Jesus talk like that, Really, it should be no surprise that you see him acting like the Father. He's behaving in the same way as the Father because he's come to reveal us who he is. Um, All through the Gospels, Jesus is seen as parental to his followers. Um, He acts like a father towards his children. Um, You see this all through the New Testament. Um, I just want to show you three of them here um, to help us kind of understand. I think these are on the screen. Um, Firstly... uh, the one we're familiar with, we've most recently looked at, is Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, 13. The author actually quotes Isaiah 8, so there's a strong connection between these two texts. Um, Hebrews 2, verse 13, he says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. So he's quoting Isaiah there, in Isaiah 8, but he's placing those words in Jesus' mouth. And he's saying, this is, this is Jesus talking here. Jesus saying, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Um, so he's... He, he's, he's um, kind of giving those words as Jesus is saying them, that God the Father has given me children. Um, John 10, verse 28, um, says, I give them eternal life. Jesus, them, is his is, is sheep, his followers. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It says it again, my Father who has given them to me. And the last one is John 17. Uh, John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father uh, just hours before his crucifixion. And he says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people. So again, he is, he is, on, he is the Father kind of on display. He's, he's manifesting the Father's name to the people. He's showing them who he is. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. He, he says that he talks about the Father giving them to him about seven more times in that prayer. And um, I don't think it could be any more clear there. The, these believers, these men and women, us, um, have been entrusted into Jesus' care by the Father. Jesus reveals the fullness of God to them in that way. So you see in these texts, Jesus' duty given to him by the Father is to hold and to care those who the Father has given to him. And in that way, he too is a a father to those given to him. Does that kind of make sense? He, He hasn't become the eternal person, God the Father, but he is fatherly towards those whom God has given to him to be responsible for. Um, God has given us to Jesus to keep us to care for us to, to nurture us to protect us um, you kind of see that in that adoption language as well isn't it Jesus even John uh, 14 or 15 um, you know he says I'm not going to leave you as orphans um, in, in John 1 he says you know he gives uh, those who believed in his name he gives them the right to become children of God there's this kind of adoption into this family happening Jesus nurtures and cares for us and it's fatherly towards us in that way Um, Turn over to Psalm 103 if if you have your Bibles. Spend a little bit of time here. Psalm 103 is probably the best kind of picture and summary of what Isaiah is talking about here. Um, In fact, I wonder if Psalm 103 was kind of rattling around Isaiah's mind as he was um, writing these things down. And... um, Psalm 103 verse 13 is kind of the, I think, the kind of central passage here, and it sums up what he is saying. Verse 13 says, as the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Um, he's saying, like a, like a, he's like a father to you. He's, he, he's, he's, he's this perfect, eternal, compassionate father to his people. Like a father is compassionate to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I think that kind of fatherly compassion the Lord has for us is the kind of central theme of this psalm. And and then all throughout it, you see David gives these various aspects of that fatherly compassion uh, of the Lord to his people. And We don't have time to look at all of them, but I really want to point three main ones out before we kind of come to a close. These are three aspects of what it means for Jesus to be everlasting father to his people. Firstly, it means he provides for us, um, and we could sit here all day long talking about the various ways that Jesus provides for us, couldn't we? Um, we even saw last week, he provides us power in our weakness, um, but all through Psalm 103, David talks about how he provides forgiveness for our sins. He provides forgiveness for us completely. Um, Look at verse 13, he forgives all, uh, sorry, verse 3, he forgives all your iniquity, he heals your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He's saying he forgives us completely, and again, he's not saying he ignores our sins, and um, this, this holy God does not overlook our sins, that they, they need to be dealt with, but read the Gospels, and you see how He does that, OK? He, he, and you see him solve that problem of our sin like the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, mighty God, eternal Father, come to pay the penalty of our sin for us on the de- on his, with his death on the cross. He forgives us completely. It's incredible. Um, secondly, Jesus being our eternal father means he knows us thoroughly. Um, I love this. This is so comforting. It's so important to reflect on daily. Verse 13, as the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. He created you. He, of course he knows you. He knows your frame. There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. He knows you better than you know you. And when you, when you think about this, um, everyone in this room will have to, comes up against that question of who am I? It's a huge one in our culture, isn't it? Who am I? Um, listen, you have a father who knows who you are. You have a Father who created you, who has known you before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2.10 says, you are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when you're up against that question, Man, who am I? Go to your eternal Father who knows you, who can give you those answers. He knows us thoroughly. I love that him, him knowing us thoroughly Means he knows that you are frail. He says he, he remembers that you are dust. He knows. I think if we're honest, these first two things shouldn't go together. They shouldn't be able to coexist. Um, I, the fact that he knows us thoroughly means that he knows your deepest and darkest sins. He knows that thing that you are most ashamed of, that thing that, that you think no one else in the world knows about, he knows it. So, how can that be true alongside that first point of him forgiving us completely? Both of those things can only be true because of the third aspect of Jesus being the eternal Father, which is that he loves us endlessly. He loves us endlessly. Look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Further on, it says, His love, is, this steadfast love, is from everlasting to everlasting. So, His love is like His everlasting nature. It doesn't have a, his love for you doesn't have a beginning. His love for you doesn't have an end. It's a, he's abounding in steadfast love. Isn't that amazing? His love for you is the reason he came into the earth. We looked at that in Romans 5, 6 to 8 last week. I want to go there again because that shows us this so clearly. That, that text says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ came and he died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, someone would die even to dare. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel story there, isn't it? The, the, the God who I ignore, the God who I show zero interest in, comes to seek me out. He comes when I was weak, when I was a sinner, when I was against him. And at just the right time, he comes into this world. And at just the right time, he dies for me. He pays the penalty for my sins on the cross so that I can be known not as an enemy but as a son. That's how Jesus proves his love for us. His love for you knows no bounds. Everyone in this room has a, has a father story. Um, some of your fathers were great, weren't they? Some of you had dreadful fathers. The rest of us have dads who are somewhere in between. Um, but listen to me. Um, no matter what your father's story is, everything you've dreamed of That a father could be. Everything you've ever wanted from your relationship. From your earthly father. Jesus is and will be for you. Your Messiah will forever be perfectly father-like. Perfectly father-like. And in the way he shepherds you. And leads you. In Jesus you have a perfect father forever. Forever. Many of you think of your father, what are the words that come to your mind when you think of your father? Maybe you have words like distant, or passive, absent, abusive, unreliable, selfish, uncaring, cruel, emotionally absent, None of those things are so with Jesus. In Jesus, you have a perfect father forever. And he is everlasting father. This is so so good to cling to. He is a father forever. We, we We don't need to have a fear that he will abandon his role. Romans 8, Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels Nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation. Covers everything. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from Christ's fatherly love. Not even death. In fact, death brings us closer. It's incredible. Listen, if you want to know that love, put your trust in Jesus. Nothing, there's, there's no other love that will fill that hole in your heart. Um, Isaiah is pointing us to that first coming of the Messiah, um, isn't he? Um, when, when that child would be born, that son would be given, that word would become flesh and dwell among us. Um, that light would, would break into the darkness. Um, but we read this text, obviously, while looking forward to his second coming. Um, where we're waiting not for a child to be born, but for a king to return. A king who comes in power and glory, but also comes to gather up his children once and for all. And I think it was John Piper said, uh, if his first coming was the dawn of this light breaking into the darkness, his second coming will be high noon. Um, we're waiting, we're looking forward to a glorious future, like I said at the beginning. Um, And and I just want to end by um, reading you a section from Revelation 21. Um, Jesus in Revelation gives John this vision of this glorious future. Um, It's kind of peeking into what we will experience when Christ comes again and when Christ comes and destroys Satan forever. Um, I'm just going to read you a section from this. And I want you to pick up on this, this everlasting Father who we will spend eternity with in His presence. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first, uh, first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All the parents in the room will understand how parental that is. I think he puts that in there for a reason. Like an everlasting father, he will wipe away the tears from his children's eyes. and Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, To the thirsty, I will give them the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Isn't that amazing? You see the fatherly aspect in that? I'm going to wipe the tears away from my children's eyes. I'm going to give them, a, how many times do your kids, can I get a drink? I'm going to give you a drink that's everlasting. You will never thirst again. What a future of everlasting glory we have that we look forward to with Jesus. Cling on to that. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for giving us yourself. We thank you for proving your love for us, this love that is everlasting, that is abounding, this love for us that has no beginning and has no end. You proved that love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were against you, while we had no interest in you, you came into this world and you died for us so that we could no longer be strangers and aliens in this world, orphans, but be called sons and daughters. How amazing is that? Thank you, Jesus, for that. Jesus, we pray that you would just fill our hearts with that truth. Um, we know us. <laughs> we, we know that we are weak. We know that we um, forget that. We know that we go searching for that um, satisfaction, for that love, for that um, relationship in so many different ways when we can only truly find it in you. So Jesus, help us to remember who you are for us every day. May we come to you every day to fill that void in our hearts, Lord. Thank you that you are for us, an everlasting Father. We look forward to that day, Lord, when you will wipe away our tears forever, when there will be no more death and crying and mourning. Oh, King Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. Come gather your people. Help us to cling on until that day, Lord. Help us to hold on. Help us to exhort one another to fix our eyes on you, Jesus. For your glory, for our joy in the meantime. Praise things in your name. Amen.